Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Sportacast. All right, Evan. UCLA had canceled, or actually had its contract canceled by Under Armour. Let's go the right way there, right? Under Armour trimming its spend. We've known for a while now that the Jordan brand was coming in to replace Under Armour at UCLA Athletics. What we did not know for the past several months was how much they were going to be paying for that right. Uh, You were right on top of it last week, first to report the news, and uh, safe to say the number came down quite a bit. Yeah, it's less than half of what Under Armour was paying in that contract. So in 2016, as you said, Under Armour and UCLA inked a 15-year, $280 million deal that includes both cash and the value of product. That's $18.6 million a year. This new six-year deal, UCLA with Nike and Jordan, is just under $47 million. uh, So it's $7.7 million a year. So 18.6 down to $7.7 million per year. That's a big drop, Scott. Yeah, is it safe to assume, however, that the university will look to claw back some of the money from Under Armour? So the disparity that we're talking about right now, straight up contract to contract, may not be the ultimate endpoint? I think that's certainly possible. That, that that contract, which which you mentioned at the beginning, UCLA during the pandemic, essentially, or Under Armour reached out to UCLA during the pandemic and said, hey, because of the force majeure specifics in this contract, we think that you guys are in breach of contract and we're tearing it up. UCLA obviously disagrees. That is now in LA County Court. I think there's a hearing on April 15th, might be the next step. Seems likely that that is going to settle for some monetary amount that is kind of akin to a buyout. So yes, I would think that UCLA's expectation is, hey, there may be some money coming towards us as kind of an unwinding of this UCLA deal. As a result, you know, they wore UCLA this year, but they covered up the, the, or they wore Under Armour this year, but they covered up the logo. They were obviously in a rush to get a new partner in at some point. So it's certainly reasonable to, under, to, to, to assume that maybe just because they were a little desperate, the terms here were different. But my general feeling is that we're seeing kind of a massive contraction of the market now that it's just Adidas and Nike. The, the under Armour, which used to be a big spender, clearly is not spending. It's going the other direction. It's trying to unwind deals that it had committed to. And, and when there's less competition, Scott, as you know, there's just less money flying around. Now, you follow UA a lot closer than I do. You used to uh, write their earnings and listen in on their earnings calls. You know they're in transition. They've had a change at the top in the leadership. Um, so what do they do now? Are they looking 
to sort of the individual. We have Steph Curry. They have The Rock. Forget about these massive programs. Uh, am I expecting, like, Jordan Spieth is also one of their guys? Am I expecting them to maybe go to Jordan and say, you see what we've done elsewhere? Uh, maybe. Are you open to? We'd like to reallocate. What, what should I expect from Under Armour? Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if they're going to almost all of their partners and saying, listen, you know, the, the company that, and, it, and it's true, it's factually accurate, the company that Under Armour was in 15 and 16 is not the company that Under Armour is now. It's trading at about, you know, I think it's just under 50% stock, the, the value of the stock now versus what it was in April 2016. Uh, a lot of these deals, and, and it's not just the UCLA, they're, they're trying to get out of their Cal deal. That was an $86 million deal that they signed in 2016. We've written over at Sportico about their Auburn deal, also a 2016 deal that included equity for the Auburn Athletic Department. That equity is obviously worth a lot less now than it was when, when they signed that deal. Under Armour, back when it was flying high and back when Nike was really struggling in North America, committed to spending a lot of money. I would put Jordan Spieth in that category as well. And now, just because the company is smaller, they're reorganizing. They're trying to unwind a lot of that strict marketing spend. But you mentioned The Rock. You mentioned Steph Curry. Those are the brands that I think Under Armour sees itself pushing forward. These, these hyper-popular individuals who have massive followings on social media that is, I think, probably a better bang for their buck the way Under Armour sees it versus paying you know, the University of Wisconsin and the University of South Carolina $70 million contracts. All right, I know all the folks recognize all the names you had just mentioned. Now, a name I did not recognize as of yesterday would be Michael McDowell. Truth mm. be told, if I said to you, Evan Novi Williams, Michael McDowell, who is he? Would you be thinking like school classmate, coworker? Would you have known who Michael McDowell was? It would have taken me a lot of guesses to get to a NASCAR driver and future Daytona 500 winner. Um, but congrats to Michael McDowell uh, winning kind of the the big opening race of the NASCAR season. A lot of attention, Scott, to the Michael Jordan team, 23-11. Both Denny Hamlin and Bubba Wallace, Michael Jordan's two two drivers, both had pretty big days. Hamlin was in there right towards the end, didn't, didn't actually end up winning. Bubba Wallace set... I think NASCAR history, the first black driver to lead at Daytona. What, what were your takeaways from the race? Yeah, my takeaways were as I was following it along social media, as you know, once again, I spent half my life in an ice rink, so that's where I was, but I was following results, and then I got, it was a long drive home from the ice rink, and as you know, there was a, a long delay for weather at Daytona. I mean, the race didn't end until past midnight Eastern time, so I'm wondering yeah. how this is going to do for the rating, because as, as you know, they always say for, let's say, football games or whatever, hey, go overtime because you'll, you'll keep the audience you have on the East Coast, and it's no problem on the West Coast. You actually add people, so it's better. Now, I don't know if that's true if we're talking past midnight for a race, but I thought it was cool. You saw, you saw all these drivers sort of in their race suits. They were going to get food. You know, One was sponsored by McDonald's, so you saw them at the McDonald's drive through window. Uh, there was just a lot of intrigue. I'm really curious to see. I guess Wednesday will probably have the numbers. I don't even know where to guess as to whether these will be up, down, flat. Uh, because of such a, a big delay, you did have some big names, and you mentioned Denny and Bubba, and you had Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, uh, up at the leaderboard. So you know, people may be tuning in to see the folks they know. But in the end, there was a there was a late crash, and you know Michael McDowell, by the way, started the race at hundred to one, so that shows you you know what what people thought of his chances. Um, sort of stayed in line and got the checkered flag. Uh, I, I really have no idea what these numbers are going to look like. You want to hazard a guess? 
I don't want to hazard a guess, but I NASCAR is kind of in a fun place right now. The, the the numbers on youth engagement are actually fairly solid, better than I thought they would be. TikTok sponsored a driver towards the end of last year. In addition to Michael Jordan, Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide, is a team owner. This year, there's a Netflix show starring Kevin James. Fox says 46 new advertisers are going to be advertising over the course of, of their NASCAR coverage this year. There's a lot going on that seems to be building momentum uh, for a, a circuit that maybe just a couple of years ago people felt was was kind of in precipitous decline. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked to Steve Phelps, the president of NASCAR, about all this stuff. And I think it's tailor-made for digital it's tailor-made for in-race betting. It's tailor-made for a young audience because it's tech-savvy. Uh, there's a lot you can do with inside the car. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you that there's a lot of opportunity there. But they need different faces. They need different voices. They need the multiple platforms because once again, I go to my, my survey here of one. My son will not sit down and watch a NASCAR race. Forget it. It is not going to happen. Will he hop on and play some sort of video game uh, on uh, that's NASCAR related? You bet. If it's not Call of Duty, if it's not Fortnite, if it's not Roblox, yeah, put it on the Xbox or the PlayStation and, and, and let he and his friends with the headsets, let them mimic drivers with the headsets yelling at each other and crashing. Yeah, that he'll do. But he and that's not a knock against NASCAR because he will not. And I'm going to go in order. No particular order. But he will not sit and watch a three hour football game. He will not sit and watch two and a half hours of NBA basketball. God forbid there's no way he's sitting there and watching golf. It's just not happening. You have got to find new and fun ways to engage a, an audience. Uh, I think NASCAR has got a shot to do that. Will he watch a seven hour rain delay? He will not watch a seven-hour rain delay, no matter so, how tired he is. He comes home from the hockey game. It's hysterical. I mean, th this is what sports executive, team executive, they need to know. He comes home from the game. The bag is put down. doesn't even air out the stuff. It's like, Dad, take care of it, you know, and I let him get away with it because I know he wants to go hang out with his friends. Runs upstairs. Within 30 seconds, the headset is on, and he and his friends are screaming at each other, whether they're playing Call of Duty, whatever it is. But they're laughing, they're screaming, and especially now when you have kids, you know, they're not in school all the time, some are not in school at all. This could be the only social outlet they have. So you kind of, you know, the parents are letting those kids engage on, the, on these devices, and they are not disappointing. I mean, that, that is an unbelievably popular vehicle, no pun intended, for these kids. One more thing on NASCAR. I want to get your thoughts on this. One of the big things that, that they are doing this year, they've changed their schedule up. There's three new stops on the Cup Series uh, scheduled this year, including one at the F1 track down in Austin. There's six uh, road courses up from three last year. There's a dirt race in Bristol. I don't think that the Top Series has done that since 1970. And, and Steve Phelps, who you mentioned, gave an interview to, to our colleague Corey Phelps this week, which I thought was really interesting. One of the things he said about why this year they're able to switch up the schedule is that two of the main companies that own the tracks have long been public. They're now private. NASCAR bought International Speedway Corp. That deal closed in October 2019. And then Speedway Motorsports, I believe, was taken public at the end of 2019 as well. Scott, we talk a lot about SPACs and this rush to bring entities in the sports world public. Obviously, as you know, when you're a public company, you're beholden to shareholders. Suddenly, the, the next quarterly earnings becomes your biggest priority. 
are there things like this that may get lost if a lot more entities in the sports world get public when, you know, if NASCAR is saying, look, we tried to change up the schedule, we couldn't because everybody was beholden to shareholders. Now that they can think more about the long-term growth business that is not the next quarter's revenue or the next quarter's gross margins, they're able to think a little bit more outside the box. Exactly what you're just talking about. It is not easy to be the head of a public company and take a long-range view when you've got shareholders who want to see the numbers for the next quarter. Absolutely. There's a reason why the NFL does not allow corporate ownership. They do not want decision-making uh, based on a quarter-to-quarter numbers basis. They want long-term health of teams. So, yeah, absolutely. It definitely is a different mindset. will allow NASCAR to take a different tact uh, on how they tend to proceed with their future. Uh, you know who else has taken a different tact? Jerry Cardinal. Redbird Capital and Casey Wasserman, uh, you know, Wasserman Media, head of the uh, Super Bowl Committee, head of the Olympic Committee of LA. Redbird taking a 30 to 40% stake in Wasserman, two big time deal makers, movers, shakers, and sports and business getting together, Evan. Yeah, this seems like a kind of a match made in heaven for, for both these people. Casey, as you mentioned, you know, he's built one of the biggest marketing firm slash athlete representation firms out there. You know, they have some of the biggest sports stars in, on, in the globe and, and, and a lot, they do a lot of marketing as well. Jerry Cardinal over at Redbird, he's the investor that, that helped buy XFL with the rock. He owns Toulouse FC, the French soccer team. One team partners is an investor of him. He's got a $500 million spec with Billy Bean, which is not involved in this acquisition at all. But, but Scott, this, this makes sense to me. These are two people that occupy slightly different spaces, but are, are both kind of A-list power brokers in sports business and, and them teaming up to help each other seems logical. Yeah. I mean, let, let's, let's clarify exactly what the deal entails. Redbird took its stake from Madrone Capital Partners. That's the family office of the Walton family. So you have the billionaire Walton family. Redbird took its stake from there. So no money goes right to Wasserman. And yet Jerry described this in our conversation after we first reported on this is that this is us going on the offensive. This is about growth capital. Well, this is about what, what Redbird can do with, it, with its connections, its money, its platforms, along with what Casey brings to the table. And we know what that is already. So th- this is about growing the platform globally. You know, Jerry has that eye globally. He was looking at trying uh, to take the parent company, the Boston Red Sox and Liverpool public. That did not work out. But as you say, we don't know what's coming from him. He is taking a global view of sport. He is looking to create new paradigms, new platforms. And you would have to think that partnering with someone like Casey can only aid in that effect. And and the pandemic, obviously a, a really tough time for anyone in, in live sports or live entertainment. But some of the themes we've hit on repeatedly over the last 10 minutes, Scott, there's an argument there, kind of what Under Armour is thinking in that in this pandemic, digital marketing obviously is is paramount. It's more important than it ever has been. And the the role of athletes specifically in playing a role in in that that marketing, that digital content, probably even bigger now than it ever has been either. So that kind of sets up a company like Wasserman, I think, very well, in that, you know, people want to hear athletes tell their stories now. People want to do more, you know, on the marketing side, and and Wasserman kind of fits both those buckets. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you're right. In one of our surveys that we did uh, not long ago for sort of the fan return to the game, you know, post-pandemic, what changes have been made that have legs? The number one thing we have heard repeatedly, and this is coming from leagues, fans, executives, is the increased and better digitization of sports, especially not only in arena, but how things are delivered to the fans at home. 
Because once again, you and I have talked about this a million times. There's a finite number of seats in stadiums times the number of games. That's the number you got. Yeah, you can monetize it, yes, but the paradigm has changed now. Now you're looking to scale globally. Thomas Friedman, the world is flat. This is sports without borders. I can just remember, do I have to go do I have to go to my David Stern story or do you want it? You want to do it? You, is this Tim for Tim anyone Poo that, Tim Puputon. <laughs> David Stern sitting there, the kid in the internet cafe, looks over his shoulder looking at the Kobe Bryant page. I love that you and I have been doing this so long that you can finish my stories. That's really scary. <laughs> but yes, that's the world we're in right now. And if this helps to increase the rate of change and what our friend Josh Walker and Angela Ruggiero are talking about at the Sports Innovation Lab, they just came out with their list uh, of these innovative companies, the most innovative teams. This is about what, what they call the fluid fan. People are not digesting sports the good old way of sitting at the TV for three, five hours watching the game. It's over. You're a dinosaur if you think that's how fans are getting their stuff. I mean, I'm out at the ice rink and I've got my phone out. I can part watch an NHL game while I'm following stats. If I want to make a bet on a putt, I can do that too on, on any of these apps. So I want it when I want it, how I want it, where I want it. And damn it, most importantly, Evan Novi Williams, it better work. We've talked about the tech when it goes down. <laughs> You've got to make sure it works. But even me at my advanced age, I, too, am a fluid fan. I don't sit on the couch, and I can only imagine what my what my little guy next door with his headset on right now, how he is going to try and follow all these things, because he can follow five screens at once. I can't do it. I know I'm a dinosaur. You know, I'm very good. I'll log in slowly and be like, okay, there's my one account, and wait, wait, what's my password? How do I change? He pulls the phone out of my hand and makes changes because I'm struggling. So uh, you better be ready for that kid. The one who wins the race to capture that kid's attention and eyeballs and affinity, that's that, those are the folks that are going to do well in the future. What a stump speech, Scott. Look at that. Thank running you. For, for, running for some kind of political I'm not sports sure. office right there. <laughs> well, well, you know what I'm not running for? Head of the Tokyo Olympic Committee. Mm, and thankfully. Uh, yeah, good transition to our, our last topic here. Yoshiro Mori, Scott, former prime minister of Japan, stepped down as leader of the of the Tokyo organizing committee for this year's summer games had some pretty controversial things to say about women uh, sitting on boards for the J Japanese Olympic committee well, wait, well hold on hold 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 were they controversial or were they just dumb <laughs> or outdated <Both. laughs> I, I would say I a little column a little column b yeah okay, um, okay. yeah i mean we can say briefly what he said he essentially there was a discussion in public discussion on a live streamed event about adding more female voices to the japanese olympic committee and he essentially pushed back on that idea saying that the women were just going to vie against each other to talk as long as possible Which, he said women talk too yes, much let's, is, be, is let's dumb, give him the headline is, he said women talk too to much that's what he said yeah, and he, just a little background on him, he's 83 years old. He kind of has a Joe Biden-ish reputation for kind of putting his foot in his mouth occasionally. He was, I believe, the the least popular, from a polling standpoint, prime minister that Japan has ever had. But tough timing here for the Japanese uh, Olympic Committee. They're trying to get these events. It starts in five months. July 23rd is, is the opening ceremony, I believe. They're trying to get this done in the middle of a pandemic. There's a lot of things stacked against them. And now, at least temporarily, they have no leader because, you know, he said some dumb things about women. And now there's there's even debate as to whether the controversy, whether athletes should get vaccine ahead of everybody else. Uh, I mean, you said we're five months away from the opening ceremony. 
like a year away from Beijing, they've got some issues to finish quickly. Yeah, I, I will also say it was felt refreshing to have a leader who says something dumb that is disqualifying him from a position of leadership come out and say, hey, if people think I should resign, I'm going to resign, <laughs> which is more or less what he did. He, he apologized. It certainly seems like he should no longer be in that role. But but when the international furor, and there was a lot of it, rose up to say that he needed to, to step down from his position, he went you know fairly quickly. Uh, I found that to be fairly refreshing. Getting back to the Olympics for a second, this is ending up to, I mean, it's going to be tremendously expensive, but back when, when, when Tokyo won the, the bid, I believe it was 2013 when they won, um, the offer was $7.3 billion was what they said this was going to cost. Right before the pandemic that had risen to 12.6 billion, there was a, an international government, uh, an internal government audit last year that said the cost was actually going to be double that. Now it sounds like the delay from 2020 to 2021 is going to add another $2.8 billion. Scott, the Olympics are so expensive to host and put on. This has been the bane of the Olympics existence where there have been fewer and fewer places bidding on the games. They're trying to revamp the bid process. Lends credence to the thought that perhaps you should just pick a rotating schedule of a few places that will have the infrastructure already there and you can keep these costs from mushrooming. Anyway... He is Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick at Soshnick. You can follow the show on Twitter at Sportacast, and you can listen to even more of this banter wherever you get your podcasts. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.